You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi there, this is Greg Young, and I am very pleased to present to you, Barry Boys listeners, a preview of the very first episode of The First, Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. The first official Bowery Boys spin-off podcast series. This first episode takes a look at the story of the first Ferris wheel, displayed at the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. I really, really think that you guys will enjoy this show. This episode is debuting simultaneously here, in place of this week's Bowery Boys episode, as well as in a new podcast feed devoted to that show. Episode two of the first will be released next Friday in the feed for the first podcast. If you listen to podcasts on iTunes, you can head over there right now and subscribe. You can easily find it by searching for the first stories. And it should be available in most podcast players now as well. Then Tom and I will be back here with a brand new episode of the Bowery Boys in two weeks. That means if you subscribe to both shows going forward, you'll have a brand new podcast every single Friday. So please sit back and enjoy the show. The first is brought to you by Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the United States. Wonder Capital says you can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash Bowery. That's wonder, W-U-N-D-E-R, capital.com slash Bowery. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. We begin with the words of Mrs. Mark Stevens from her 1895 travelogue called Six Months at the Fair. While waiting to take the trip upon the wheel, some stared in dazed panomimic wonder at the huge cog wheels and swift driving shafts of the machinery. Miss Stevens is in Chicago upon a strip of land called the Midway Plaisance, the most extraordinary place in the world in 1893. After entering the car, the guard locked the door. Then in the most hospitable manner imaginable, he would say, Be seated. Make yourselves comfortable to enjoy the beautiful panorama spread out before you. Up, up, high, higher, highest, and we were 275 feet in midair. Before us were the waters of Lake Michigan which sometimes became suddenly as wild and dangerous as the Atlantic, to which it is often compared. Mrs. Stevens was on board a gigantic mechanical wheel, the largest of its kind, rising above the international contingents gathered around it and the thousands of visitors drawn to the most spectacular attraction at the fair. Fronting it were the countless marble-like buildings and floating from domes and towers were ensigns of every country, predominant and most beautiful of all, the stars and stripes of the red, white, and blue. Everybody in America was talking about this astonishing new creation from the mind of one of America's most promising young geniuses. But this is a story of an invention that does not end well for its inventor. This is the story of the first Ferris wheel.
Welcome to The First. I'm your host, Greg Young. Do you remember the first time you ever rode upon a great big mechanical ride at an amusement park or a county fair? You know, something upgrading from the swing sets and merry-go-rounds of the playground to a carousel or roller coaster, possibly operated by a teenager on her summer job. I was about seven or eight years old when I rode this big, swirly thing called the Octopus at a little street fair in Stratford, Missouri. It was me and my sister and my cousin just whipping around in this large mechanical spinning device. At least two of us, I won't tell you which two, vomited on that ride. And I remember thinking that any ride that could make you throw up was the coolest thing in the world. Well, in 1893, thousands of people, young and old alike, shared a similar experience riding the very first Ferris wheel, by far the biggest mechanical ride in the world at that time. I can't vouch exactly for how well they held their lunches in, but I'm sure it took their breaths away. From Scientific American, July 1st, 1893, quote, This curious piece of mechanism carries 36 pendulum cars, each seating 40 passengers. Thus, one revolution of the wheel carries 1,440 people to a height of 250 feet in the air, giving to each passenger a magnificent view and a sensation of elevation akin to that of a balloon ascent. This was no mere amusement. This Goliath machine was built as a demonstration of industrial might, the centerpiece of America's greatest show-and-tell of its Gilded Age accomplishments, the Columbian Exposition, or the World's Fair of 1893. In the years following the Industrial Revolution, World's Fairs were ideal ways to exhibit your country's finest commodities, both its natural resources and its greatest and most innovative minds. As America was expanding west, its great cities became wealthier and eager to show off their contributions to the world. Between 1876 and 1890, the United States would host World's Fairs in Philadelphia, Louisville, Atlanta, New Orleans, Boston, and New York. By the late 1880s, there was one city in particular that had something very important to prove. In 1871, a great fire consumed one-third of Chicago, Illinois, a key transportation hub sitting on the shores of Lake Michigan. The city not only rebuilt, it transformed itself into a metropolis of the future, great building and landscape architects experimenting with form, office buildings rising to unparalleled heights, giving rise to the skyscraper, to the skyline. Just 20 years after the blaze, Chicago was aggressively competing with New York for the right to guide America into the 20th century. By 1890, it had overtaken Philadelphia and Brooklyn to become America's second largest city after New York. Its profile was on the rise, so it's no surprise that after a prolonged battle with New York and its moneyed moguls, that the U.S. Congress eventually settled on Chicago as the location for the most prominent fair of all, the celebration of the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus sailing the ocean blue in 1492. In fact, the fair opened a year late, on the 401st anniversary in 1893 upon former swampland on the shore of Lake Michigan that eventually became Jackson Park. No less than Chicago's grand architect and city planner, Daniel Burnham, was appointed the fair's director of works to oversee the construction of a miniature city. Over 150 buildings on more than 600 acres of land an unparalleled collection of neoclassical structures, most installed not out of marble, but of a plaster substance called staff, and rendered all in white, at night enhanced in electric light, to be forever called the White City. But Burnham was vexed by one extraordinary precedent set by Paris when they held their own World's Fair in 1889. 
Fairs often included one building of profound grandiosity, temporary structures that would eventually stick around and live on to define a city well after the exposition events were over. But the organizers of Paris's fair outdid all others with the construction of a delicate tower of iron latticework created by engineer Alexandre Gustave Eiffel. The thing to remember about the Eiffel Tower is that when it was completed in March of 1889, it became the tallest man-made structure in the world, besting the Washington Monument. But how do you top the Eiffel Tower? Burnham was determined to set a fire under America's newest industrial talents, and he did so in 1891 at a Chicago dinner meeting of renowned architects and civil engineers. He did not hold back. Said Burnham, Towers of various kinds have been proposed, but towers are not original. Mere bigness is not what is wanted. Something novel, original, daring, and unique must be designed and built if American engineers are to retain their prestige and standing. Burnham was basically saying, Civil engineers, what's your problem? Some in the audience may have been offended. But one young civil engineer heard Burnham's words and took up the challenge. This was a job for George Washington Gale Ferris, or simply GWG, engineer and visionary. Now, George Washington Gale Ferris is not named after who you think he is. He was born on Valentine's Day in 1859 in the town of Galesburg, a religious colony in Illinois founded by the minister George Washington Gale. But young Ferris was just five years old when his family picked up and left Galesburg for the Wild West, covering the plains in a covered wagon to eventually settle in Carson City, Nevada. It's here, as legend has it, that young George sat and observed the great water wheels on the Carson River, keeping in mind their movements as they scooped water up in their buckets. But he was a Western boy with Eastern ambitions and uncommon intellect. In 1876, he moved to Troy, New York, to attend Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, a school whose alumni included many prominent Gilded Age engineers. After graduation, he grabbed a plum job with a minor engineering firm in New York City. He would have little time to explore New York's great engineering challenge of the day, the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, overseen by another Rensselaer alum, Washington Roebling. Ferris was sent out on various railroad and bridge construction projects across the country. He hopped from firm to firm until, in 1886, at 27 years old, he started an engineering company himself in Pittsburgh, specializing in the testing of metals for bridges and railroad lines. By 1890, he was building bridges himself, employing a talented network of builders and engineers whom he would summon for the project which would later define him. This put Ferris squarely in the center of American progress at a time when the country was expanding and cities reached to construct mighty symbols of urban pride. And here was Ferris, a man of great eagerness and optimism. Said a reporter of Ferris in 1893, He greets you easily. His demeanor is quiet. For a Western man, he is rather fastidious in his dress. Perhaps his most notable characteristic is a steel blue eye of remarkable depth and clarity. There is about him something of that naive, almost boyish candor that is such a striking characteristic of Edison. One feels he is in the presence of a man teeming with ideas who is destined to play an important role in the industrial and mechanical advancement of this country. Ferris found himself in Chicago in 1891 when his firm was hired to inspect the structural metal elements to be used in the construction of the World's Fair pavilions. And it put him here in time to hear the words of Daniel Burnham setting out his challenge to civil engineers. Mere bigness is not what is wanted. Something novel, original, daring, and unique. That night, during a merry dinner at a chop house with some friends, Ferris was struck with inspiration, an idea that was neither a tower nor was it sedentary. 
His vision involved not one, but two gigantic wheels connected together with steel rods and hung upon a massive axle. They were, in effect, massive bicycle wheels, which would revolve not for the purpose of industry, but amusement. In Ferris's own words, I got out some paper and began sketching it out. I fixed the size, determined the construction, the number of cars we would run, the number of people it would hold, what it would charge. In short, before the dinner was over, I had sketched out almost the entire detail, and my plan never varied an item from that day on. The wheel stands in the placence at this moment as it stood before me then. Ferris had taken the primordial shape of invention, the wheel, rendered it on a colossal scale, a geometric wonder, almost like a great pyramid for the industrial age. Well, at first, the fair committee scoffed, and even Burnham himself thought the public might be frightened to ever board such a monstrosity. Some referred to Ferris as, quote, the man with wheels in his head. In fact, they found it so absurd that the project was initially rejected in June of 1892, only to have them change their mind by November, but with a couple critical and seemingly insurmountable caveats. Ferris must shore up all the funding to build the will himself, and he must build the entire thing in roughly four to five months during a Chicago winter. Ferris immediately summoned his most talented builders for the task. In a series of telegrams and letters, he's practically begging his most trusted collaborators to join the project. Luther Rice, who eventually became the project's construction superintendent, received the following plea from Ferris. I suppose I could get two or three hundred men here, in Pittsburgh or in the East, if I cared to have them. But I want you, especially. The matter of salary can be arranged satisfactorily. I will be in Detroit tomorrow and will be in Chicago Sunday. I want you to run up here and see me Sunday. Do not fail to come up. I have the pleasure to remain sincerely yours. G.W.G. Ferris. Ferris offered to investors stock shares in a Ferris Will company, but ultimately he was forced to use his own personal credit to fund construction and ask personal favors of many American steel and ironworks who were already overbooked with jobs. Why did he make these great sacrifices, expending his entire personal worth and reputation, throwing himself body and soul into this project? Ferris saw this as an animation of his own talents, a calling card to be seen for miles. Factories in Ohio and Pennsylvania crafted the immense machinery of the wheel and shipped it to Detroit, where the pieces boarded a train and headed to Chicago. Meanwhile, Rice had a daunting task, cracking into the icy Chicago earth, three feet of frost and frozen quicksand to build the foundation, and an underground steam pipe system connected to boilers that would fuel the wheel's movement. The wheel was almost completely assembled by June, just a few weeks after the opening of the fair. This meant that the finishing touches were observed by thousands of fairgoers who could only marvel at the potential of this great thing which awaited them on the grounds. Before the 36 cars were installed, workmen bravely latched themselves to spokes as the massive gears made their first test run. The first official passenger on the wheel was George's wife, Margaret. On one afternoon, Rice telegraphed Ferris. Six more cars are hung today. People are wild to ride on the wheel, and an extra force of guards is required to keep them out. Well, where was Ferris? Well, Ferris did not have a day off. Attending to his neglected business back in Pittsburgh, running from city to city, shoring up enthusiasm and funding, he was basically turning himself into a nervous wreck. Ferris's anxiety is on display in a telegram to Rice the week before opening. Do not start the wheel before Monday morning. If you are absolutely ready for the public Monday morning, start her. Otherwise, wait until Tuesday. 
be sure and have your men understand their duties before taking a ticket. The Columbian Exposition, at its opening in May, embodied the grace and elegance of the day, from its almost mythical pavilions on the shoreline by America's greatest architects, its fountains, arches, and bridges, creating exaggerated caricatures of dreamt European landscapes, enhanced at sundown by a large-scale glow of electric light courtesy of George Westinghouse and Nikola Tesla. Inside the various pavilions were great inventions, sculpture collections, and a never-before-seen trove of art. The streets were filled with the music of Scott Joplin, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and John Philip Sousa. Ferris's wheel was not actually within the main campus of the Columbian Exposition. It was located on the Midway Placence, a strip of land just outside the so-called respectable section of the fair. More adventurous and peculiar delights could be found here. A replica of a Hawaiian volcano, an 875-foot-long railroad track called the Ice Railway, coated in artificial snow, and the Captive Balloon, a wildly unsafe hot air ride tenuously latched to the ground by a tether. More appealing were the exotic dioramas lined up like a flamboyant version of the United Nations, makeshift villages presenting the delights of foreign cultures, Turkey, India, Morocco, China. In fact, next to the site of Ferris's anxiety here was an extremely popular replica of the streets of Cairo with an alluring belly dancer named Little Egypt, easily becoming the most controversial element of the fair. But the wheel, Ferris's wheel, sitting like a centerpiece in the middle of the Midway Placence, was the star of the 1893 World's Fair. George was there for the gala opening on June 21st, Perfectly dressed with a pink boutonniere, the wheels in his head spinning in overdrive. During the opening ceremony, attended by thousands, his wife gave him a golden whistle, and at Ferris's blow, the wheel, filled with politicians, socialites, and dignitaries, began revolving. This was not your ordinary amusement. This was a once-in-a-lifetime event, lifting 1,440 people 250 feet in the air. From a description in Scientific American, the 36 carriages of the Great Wheel are hung on its periphery at equal intervals. Each car is 27 feet long, 13 feet wide, containing 40 revolving chairs made of wire and screwed to the floor. It is provided with a conductor to open the doors, preserve order, and give information. To avoid accidents from panics and to prevent insane people from jumping out, the windows are covered with an iron grating. People had very few ways to describe their experiences, that exhilaration that comes from rising up high for the very first time. From a newspaper reporter in western Kansas that year, the coaches are so suspended that you cannot tell when you are going up or coming down. There is nothing about it to cause the dizzy sensation that one is apt to feel in going up or down in an elevator. Admission to the wheel was 50 cents, or about $15 today, although you did have to pay another admission just to get into the fair to then pay the $15 to ride the wheel. From the Review of Reviews published in late 1893, the sensation is delightful. Of course you expect to be dizzy, seasick, disturbed by the motion of the cars, and you are disappointed. You look out. The Midway Placence, with its strange medley, is sinking below you. In front, the towers and long, gleaming pavilions of the White City are lifted into view. Then slowly, with that subtle growing sense such as you experience as you stand before the canvas of a master, the whole majestic panorama is unrolled before you. From the wheel, you really did see the whole world, so to speak. Quoting Scientific American again from September 9th, This is the biggest wheel on Earth, and devoted to giving pleasure by swinging the visitor up 250 feet. In other words, it is a colossal merry-go-round. 
Several proposals of marriage were made on the wheel, and the carriages were so spacious that a few people even requested to get married on the wheel. No permission, though, was ever granted. Rides upon the wheel were virtually uninterrupted by natural forces. It survived battering thunderstorms and dreadfully hot afternoons. By the time it closed in October, the wheel had hosted 1.5 million riders, as many as 30,000 people a day, grossing three quarters of a million dollars, or the equivalent of 20 million dollars today. From a manufacturing pamphlet, quote, "The Ferris wheel stands alone." And while it is doubtful if ever a greater wheel will be constructed in such an event, Mr. Ferris's name will always be coupled with it, as with everything which comes within the category of big wheels. For a moment, Ferris's wheel had indeed become the American Eiffel Tower, but by the time the wheel made its final revolution at the fair, clouds had begun to form in the life of George Washington Gale Ferris. He would never make another wheel again. The tragic turn of the Ferris wheel. After this, on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety-five, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. The first. Is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Squarespace is easy. Creating your website with Squarespace is a simple and intuitive process. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. Squarespace makes adding a domain name to your site simple. If you sign up for a year, you'll receive a custom domain for free for a year. With Squarespace, you can design a best-in-class online store with their award-winning templates, customizable settings, and more, all without the need of a single plugin. Are you selling something? Not a problem. From nationally recognized brands to your favorite local shops, Squarespace is trusted by hundreds of thousands of savvy shop owners around the world. They include all the tools you need to track inventory, process orders, and send custom emails in one intuitive interface. Best of all, Squarespace offers 24/7 customer support. Every member of the customer care team is an experienced Squarespace user working in a Squarespace office. No matter how technical your problem or trivial seeming your question, one of their team is always online to assist you. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code BOYS to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com offer code BOYS. Squarespace Set your website apart. The first is also brought to you by Ring. dot com. There's a home burglary every thirteen seconds. Most happen in broad daylight, with a burglar ringing your doorbell to make sure you're away before breaking in. Ring video doorbell has been proven to stop burglaries before they happen by allowing you to see and speak to anyone approaching your door using your smartphone. Now, Ring is using their advanced motion detection technology to protect your entire property with the Ring of Security Kit. The kit includes a Ring video doorbell for the front door and a Ring stick-up cam, the wireless weatherproof HD camera to keep an eye on other parts of your property. 
Ring Video Doorbell and Stick Up Cam both install in minutes. And working together, they provide 24-7 monitoring of your entire home, whether you're in the living room or thousands of miles away. For a limited time, listeners of The First get $50 off the Ring of Security Kit. It's the lowest price anywhere. So you can go right now to ring.com slash Bowery, B-O-W-E-R-Y, and join the hundreds of thousands who protect their home with Ring. Go to ring.com slash Bowery for $50 off. That's ring.com slash Bowery. And now, back to the first. The Wonder Wheel is the jewel in the crown of Coney Island out in Brooklyn, New York. It's not actually a Ferris wheel, per se. While its cars are far smaller than those on the original Ferris wheel, some of the Wonder Wheel's cars bob and swivel around. At the entrance, you're given an option of which one you would prefer to ride in. The 150-foot-tall wheel was constructed in 1920 and grants its name to the Boardwalk Amusement Park Dino's Wonder Wheel. My full name is Dino John Verderis. Everybody calls me DJ. Of Dino's Wonder Wheel, what's your relation to the original founders of the park? Well, my grandfather purchased it from the original family, the Garms family. Yeah. And then when he took over, he called it Dino's Wonder Wheel. And I was named after my grandfather, so that's where I got oh the name. Oh, my God, that's great. How long have you worked here since you were a kid, I guess? I've or? worked here since I was old enough to cut school and get here. So first grade. <laughs> you realize how many people are envious of that story, you can imagine? Yeah. Back in the day, I think you can get away with it. Now they have, like, attendance <laughs> records. I think uh, I'd be pretty screwed. My whole family, and it's pretty much only family, that runs the Wonder Wheel. So we have a couple other guys who aren't blood-related, mm -hmm. but they've been here for over 30 years, so they're family. So the wheel itself is kind of this stalwart of amusement park rides. It's been continuously in service since 1920, right? That's right. It's never broken down mechanically. Mm -hmm. The only thing that ever had to be done was during the blackout, we mm -hmm. had to crank people down. It goes through, I guess, sort of routine checkups every week, every month. Uh, it's every day, and while I'm operating or whoever's operating or loading people in and out, we're always looking for any potential problems, right. like tire replacements or door latches. But it gets maintained constantly. As, as we speak now, there's probably a guy up there, one of our guys greasing it and checking things out. I mean, for a 95-year-old, like she's doing pretty damn good. <laughs> she's doing great. But back in the day, they made things a lot stronger, I guess, than they make things today. Any sort of weird happenings? Like, for instance, uh, has anyone ever gotten married or asked to be married on the Wonder Wheel? We get our share of engagements every year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> each one is special because everybody has their own ideas. So. Oh, no. I don't want to ruin that for everybody. Everybody does it their own way, and everybody does it in a special way. Uh, before my time, I heard there was one or two weddings, too, in one of the stationary cars. wedding, wow. So the wheel is in operation. Uh, like, what are the, What's the season like for the wheel and for the park in general? We open Palm Sunday, so that's a floating holiday. Mm -hmm. It can vary, usually around April. Okay. And then we close right after Halloween. All right, but that's a long period of service for the wheel. And the wheel's one of the oldest in America, I think, right? In America, right. I think mm -hmm. there's an older one in Vienna somewhere. but um, <laughs> There is, yeah. In America, I'm pretty sure it is the oldest one. It's definitely the oldest of its kind. It's the first of its kind. Almost 125 years ago, just a few meters from the spot where the Wonder Wheel would eventually be constructed, sat another wheel of amusement, an observation roundabout, 50 feet in diameter, and a modestly thrilling ride. It was built in 1892, one year before the opening of the Ferris wheel in Chicago. This wheel in Coney Island was similar to two others that were located in New Jersey, Asbury Park and Atlantic City. In fact, Atlantic City was where the very first one was built in 1890. The observation roundabout here in Atlantic City would later prove to be of vexing concern to Ferris and his wheel investors further west. These wheels were built by an amusement exhibitor named William Summers, who would eventually patent his wheel design. 
The Garden City Observation Wheel Company licensed Summer's design and petitioned the World's Fair Committee in 1892 to build a version of the roundabout within the fairgrounds. They were rejected. That prize, of course, would eventually go to Ferris. But the Garden City Company did build a Summer's roundabout just outside the entrance of the Midway Plaisance and in sight of Ferris's Great Wheel. The Summer's Wheel only rose 60 feet in the air. It cost 10 cents and appealed to those who couldn't afford to go into the fair itself. But the operators of Summer's Observation Roundabout went one step further. In July of 1893, with Ferris really raking it in with thousands of dollars in ticket sales, well, this company sued Ferris for infringing on Summer's patents, in essence, accusing him of stealing his big idea. The case would keep Ferris and his shareholders in court for almost a year, assiduously detailing every bit of mechanism, comparing it and contrasting it with this less sophisticated will that was still very, very similar. During the trial, a major revelation came when Ferris confessed that he had ridden on Summer's observation roundabout in Atlantic City in 1890. From his court testimony, I was in Atlantic City about September. I saw on the beach a vertically revolving wheel, which I supposed to be 40 or 50 feet in diameter. I rode on the wheel in company with some small children. I did not know this wheel to be the Somers Patton wheel. In fact, paid so little attention to it that I don't even recollect how the thing was propelled. In fact, it attracted so little attention in my mind at the time that I didn't care to take the second ride on the wheel. The fact of my having at one time for a few minutes seen a wheel, or as it is called, a vertical swing of small dimensions, had not the slightest thing to do with my projecting and building the Ferris wheel. Ferris's reputation was at stake, and so obviously he could not admit to even the slightest inspiration. Reading through this testimony, one hears a very stressed out human being. This is simply not what he needed to be doing during the summer of his greatest success. When pressed about articles which ran in newspapers and journals that compared his invention with other roundabouts of this type, he declared, So far as I know, all of these portions of newspaper articles here quoted have not been inspired by me. I have, of course, inspired newspaper articles, but not trash of this character, and am wholly irresponsible for newspaper matter published throughout this country in regard to the Ferris wheel. By June of 1894, the court dismissed the case in favor of Ferris, who had spent thousands of dollars of his own money in his defense. However, the Garden City Observation Wheel Company was only ordered to pay Ferris a grand total of $26.50. This was the least of Ferris's worries, for by then he was battling the World's Fair organizers themselves. The fair closed on October 31st, but the fairgrounds remained open to paying customers interested in the emptied architecture. But officials forced concessions to close, including the wheel, going so far as to erect a fence around the wheel to prevent access to it. The wheel sat motionless, sat throughout the winter, into the early months of 1894, wearing a sheath of ice and frost, at times rendering it invisible during a snowy afternoon. Major disagreements erupted between Ferris's company and the World's Fair, each party suing the other for shares of the wheel's receipts, difficulties which would not be resolved for years. The fair greatly benefited from the wheel's popularity, but failed to share any of its entrance receipts with Ferris, and in fact demanded half of the wheel's total. But keep in mind, Ferris and his shareholders had funded the entire project. It was essentially built entirely from his pockets and his hard work. The wider context for all of this, of course, was the Panic of 1893, an international financial crisis which closed hundreds of banks and thousands of businesses. Ferris was deliriously in debt, and the Panic was affecting any income he would have gotten in from his other companies. The benefits of being the so-called toast of the fair had not materialized for Ferris. The stress and financial strain was taking a toll on his marriage and his health. 
His health was deteriorating. His only way out was with the wheel itself, getting it back to operation and generating income. His optimism, although very weakened, is still very evident in his ideas. Other cities professed interest in buying the wheel. In fact, a plan was briefly hatched to move the wheel to Herald Square in New York City, where it would fit snugly with the Broadway theaters and the newly constructed office towers. But that plan fell through. The wheel was eventually disassembled and in 1895 rebuilt within a small amusement park near Lincoln Park. However, even the costs to construct this were staggering, and the park's secret ingredient, a liquor license, was rejected after a strong pushback from the community. The park was a failure. His marriage ended sometime in early 1896. As did his work with his engineering firms, selling off his ownerships of these companies to bail out his finances. Near the end, he even divested himself of the Ferrisville company itself. The project for which he had so much acclaim had now defeated him, and his body was worn out. On November 18th, he was admitted into a Pittsburgh hospital. It is believed by most that he had contracted typhoid fever, although his body had been weakened for many years by consumption. George Washington Gale Ferris was only 37 years old when he died on November 22, 1896, with nobody by his bedside. But even in death, Ferris's debts burdened him. The funeral parlor refused to release his body due to unpaid bills and held the cremated remains of George Ferris for over 15 months. It is believed that somebody finally retrieved his remains, but to this day, their whereabouts are unknown. The great Ferris wheel outlasted its maker by almost a decade. In 1904, it reopened for another World's Fair, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in St. Louis, Missouri. And the wheel was held in as high a regard there as it had been in Chicago. But what was gone was its novelty. The Ferris wheel would be no Eiffel Tower. By 1900, another bridge engineer named William Sullivan had invented a portable Ferris wheel, much smaller than the original, of course, but one that could be carted from town to town. That spelled the end of the first Ferris wheel. After the St. Louis Fair, it languished like a ruin, this magnificent ride, now described as a white elephant and an eyesore. On May 11, 1906, it was destroyed. From the Chicago Tribune the following day, blown to pieces by a monster charge of dynamite, the Ferris wheel came to an ignominious end yesterday at St. Louis after a varied career of 13 years. At its ending, it was unwept and unsung. So, what did Ferris invent, really? If rotating amusement wheels had already existed, and you could certainly find examples going back to, like, 17th century Europe, then is the invention just the certain way the wheel was designed? And if that's the case, then why do we call virtually every ride that resembles this one? Why do we call them all Ferris wheels? Well, as I was putting this show together, I have to confess I was a little unsure of this question, so I needed to go back to the source, to Chicago, and the original home of the World's Fair. Today, the Midway Plaisance is nothing more than a grassy lawn, and the spot where the wheel once stood is now just south of the University of Chicago campus, and there's a skating rink there. Instead, the legacy of the Ferris wheel in Chicago lives on north of here, on a 3,300-foot pier known as the Navy Pier. The pier opened 100 years ago this past summer, originally as a freight dock and exhibition space. Today, it's a popular tourist destination with restaurants, beer gardens, 
Giordano's deep dish pizza, of course, and many other modern pleasures. And to celebrate its centennial, the Navy Pier replaced its old Ferris wheel with a swanky new European model. Hi there, just one for the centennial wheel. Thank you. Can I have a receipt also? Thanks. The centennial wheel is 196 feet tall, 54 feet shorter than Ferris's, with 41 cars that can hold up to eight people. And the diverse crowd of teenagers and tourists, I imagine, is quite a bit different than those at the original Chicago World's Fair. After snaking through a long line, I finally entered a gondola, as they're called, with seven other strangers, none of us from Chicago. We ascended very smoothly, rising above the other attractions of the Navy Pier. Nobody was looking at the boats or the water of Lake Michigan. Instead, everyone bent over to look out the western window towards the city of Chicago, just as the sun was setting below the skyline, highlighting the beautiful, a very particular set of Chicago skyscrapers, a grand mix of structures from the 1930s to today. In 1893, the riders of the Ferris wheel could see central Chicago as well, albeit as a set of buildings a good distance north of the fair. The Ferris wheel allowed its riders an unheard of perspective on the world, facades of the old world beneath them, representations of rebirth to the north of them. Today we live in a world of super-tall skyscrapers and elevators which can whisk us up to great heights. We live in a world where we ride airplanes soaring thousands of miles overhead. But in 1893, such common achievement of heights, for the pure joy of it, were exceedingly rare, confined only to the precariousness of a balloon ride or a stationary thrill of an observation deck. And Ferris devised this bit of floating-on-a-cloud magic carpentry here by using the two industrial tent poles of the 19th century, steel and steam. Daniel Burnham had excoriated American civil engineers for their lack of creativity, for their desires to build something that was, quote, merely big. But I think on this point, Burnham was wrong. While its size may have eventually spelled doom for the original Ferris wheel, it also inspired imaginations and presented vistas that few of us could imagine. Many of today's so-called Ferris wheels have little in common with the first one, from the Viennese giant wheel, which was built in 1897 in Vienna, Austria, to the high roller, the world's tallest in Las Vegas, at 520 feet, more than double the height of the original. Out in Staten Island, in fact, another wheel is in the works that will rise 630 feet in the air. But most all of them are situated in a way to provide not only a thrill, as one gets on a roller coaster, but a view, a stunning perspective of the world around you. Or as that friendly conductor said to Miss Mark Stevens, Be seated. Make yourselves comfortable to enjoy the beautiful panorama spread out before you. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining me on this exercise first episode of The First, Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. A very big thanks to the folks at the Chicago History Museum and the National Archives at Chicago who offered tremendous assistance in my research for this show. And also to that guy with the greatest job in the world, Dino Verderas of Dino's Wonderworld in Coney Island. I want to also thank the two voices that helped bring life to a couple figures in this story. My dear friend Tanya Bielski-Brom, who actually lives in Ferris's home of Pittsburgh, she provided the voice of Mrs. Mark Stevens. And yes, that's actually her pen name, by the way, Mrs. Mark Stevens. And big thanks to Mo Brady, bringing to life Mr. Ferris himself. Now, Mo is the host of a fascinating podcast about the world of Broadway, or at least behind the curtains of Broadway, 
The show is called The Ensemblist, focusing on the experience of being a Broadway performer, from the first rehearsal through performing eight days a week and beyond. He hosts The Ensemblist with the lovely Nika Graf Lanzaroni. I love them to death. Please check out their podcast, The Ensemblist. Special thanks, of course, to Tom Myers, my co-host on the Bowery Boys New York City History podcast. And a special shout out to our former intern, Alec Grossman, who actually helped me workshop the idea of this particular podcast. If you're interested in the subject of George Ferris and the Ferris Wheel, go to your local bookstore and look for Ferris Wheels, an Illustrated History by Norman Anderson, and Circles in the Sky, The Life and Times of George Ferris by Richard G. Weingart. Don't miss the next episode of the first. I'll be releasing the second show in just a week from now. Until the next, this has been the first. Thanks again for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.